I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I got to know my next guest when I was part of a mentoring group, a group of professionals supporting social entrepreneurs to scale their ideas as part of the Ashoka program. So I don't know if you know about the Ashoka Foundation, but I'll share a link to that in the show notes. They do some really beautiful work with social entrepreneurs. But I am really pleased to introduce and speak to today Flaviano Bianchini. He's the founder and director, as well as the president of the U.S. Board of Directors of Source International, which he founded in 2009. He is an environmentalist and naturalist, a scientist by training. He was an Ashoka Fellow from 2012, and he specializes in Management and Valorization of Natural Resources at the University of Pisa in Italy. He holds a master's degree in human rights and conflict management, and for several years has been dealing with violations of human rights and the damage that that does to people's health and communities because of the extractive industries, especially in Latin America. So yes, we're talking mostly about the mining industry. His studies on the impact of mining on the environment and health led to the modification of mining laws in Honduras the adoption of precautionary measures by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Guatemala, and the approval of laws on the welfare of the city of Cerro de Pasca in Peru. So between 2007 and 2009, he conducted an awareness campaign on the impact of mining activity in Latin America in collaboration with Amnesty International. So basically bringing his scientific background to arm communities to actually protect themselves from, well, let's just say, lack of protection by their governments, perhaps exploitation by mining industry and the impact that it had on their health and well-being. He was the Environmental Candidate of the Year from magazine New Ecology in 2008 and received the Social Worker Award from the University of San Carlos of Guatemala in 2006, as well as the Chatwin Prize in 2010 for his book In Tibet, Un Viaggio Clandestino. Makes me want to learn Italian. Sounds fun. I'm sure it's been translated into other languages, we'll also ask. He received the Ashoka Fellowship in 2012 and since then um, has continued to do work all over the world. So we will talk in depth about that because it's a really interesting journey. And you came to mind, Flaviano, when I was thinking, who would make a really interesting podcast guest? Who do I know? Because I know all these amazing people. I've had the privilege of working with all these people who actually you work in discomfort, you sit in discomfort, you know it. It's it's the reason you do what you do. So I'm so happy to reconnect with you. It's been a few years now. So welcome, Flaviano. Thank you. Thank you very much, Betsy, and welcome to everybody. Mm. We've got a great Italian accent coming up, so accent alert going on there. <laughs> so the first question I always ask all of my guests on this podcast is, what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? I think... In my case, it's probably a pretty common one. Um, at the end of the university, um, there is this huge uncomfort moment for everybody. You're finishing your studies and then there is the world outside there and you don't know what to do and how to do and why. Um, and I was just you know, traveling around and I was in this conference in Milan, in the north of Italy, where there was this Guatemalan activist that was 
speaking about the mining impacts uh, in Guatemala on indigenous communities in the in the northwest in the highlands. And you know, uh, she had this very powerful and emotional speech, but she she was she had a completely lack of evidences and scientific backgrounds. And mm. I was just finishing my university on science, so I said, well why don't help her and their organization to get concrete scientific evidences about the pollution and the human rights violation caused by those mining industries? Well, a couple of months later, I graduated in environmental science and a couple of months to collect some funds and with a one-way ticket and $7,000 of a small projects financed by you know several different actors weird random actors i just flew to guatemala and spent the next year and a half doing that wow and from there basically it it all evolved into what is today source international well you just threw yourself into discomfort and yeah you are in this moment of discomfort and then you just say okay Let's try something. Let's do something. And then I think it is basically an avalanche of discomfort, one after the other, constant discomfort for years until to get to, to where we stand now with Source International, which it's, it is still in a, in a sort of co- continuous discomfort. That's what I was going to say. I was like, I don't really get the feeling the discomfort has stopped. It's just sort of, I mean, just seriously, the the material you work with, the issues you work with, the communities you work with aren't exactly comfortable. You know, you're in sort of not affluent mining communities in often remote areas of the world dealing with the fact that, you know, environmental degradation is giving children leukemia or having, you know, causing people to have major health issues. So it doesn't really sound like the discomfort has calmed down since, but how have you changed since? How has that discomfort shaped you and maybe made you more resilient? How has that changed how you live, I guess? Yeah, it, it obviously changes a lot the way you see the world and the way you see yourself in the world. As I often say, I know I will not change the world, you know, not, not Nelson Mandela didn't, nor um, Gandhi, so <laughs> for sure not Flaviano Bianchini. Um, but at the same time, I would be happy if one day when I would look back at my life, I would say, okay, I've done whatever I could. You know, I, I put all my effort in doing something for good and that's it. Hmm. And, uh, and yes, and at the end of the day, we, we got results. Um, as you said in the previous, in the presentation, I mean, we obtained the change of the Honduran mining law that affected basically positively the entire country of Honduras and all the Hondurans. Uh, we got $50 million compensation for communities in Mexico who obviously changed completely their well-being. Uh, we, we brought a case to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, creating a precedent that they will set up something different for the entire American continent. So, you know, you still get results. Uh but 90% of the time is just frustration. Ah, because from the, the list, the laundry list of things you've changed at systemic level and millions of lives you've impacted, it sounds to me like you're changing the world. 
But I'm I'm interested in hearing, yeah, what keeps you still moving forward? Because you probably are always focused on what's the next issue, what's the next problem, what's the discomfort I have to address because I can't just sit back and be like, well, I did that thing. Now I can go retire to wherever. But yeah, how how does that discomfort constantly keep you moving forward and constantly seek the next thing? Because you see other people in discomfort. How does that translate to your personal discomfort and drive you? Well, yeah, you know, you you travel to a community and, for example, in Cerro de Pasco, where we are working since now 12 years, I'm working there since 12 years. And every time there is uh, this huge pollution and, yeah, children get leukemia for for the exposition to heavy metals. And then you have to speak with their moms and explain them that the kid is sick because there is this huge pollution all around the city. And that's that's probably the most discomfort of all of my job. Also, because we don't have a solution, you know, there's no, I mean, the solution is stopping the pollution, but, you know, that's not in our power. We just try to do whatever we can in order to make the mining company and the government to stop the pollution. But, you know, the mom arrived to you and they they expect you to, you know, save their kids and you, you basically, you are unable to do that. And that's, that's awful. And that's really that that really hurts, you know, when you're there and then you come back home, it's like, and then that, that emotion, that sensation remains in, in the back of your mind all the time. And then it, it you cannot give up once. <laughs> How do you balance your own personal comfort with the discomfort of knowing what you know? You know, when you go back home and you take a break because you need a break, how do you navigate that tension? between knowing what you know and taking care of yourself and taking breaks? Well, I have to say that's a difficult part. At the beginning, it was super hard. Um, at the beginning, I remember these, you know, coming back home and feeling guilty. You get out for a drink with a friend. You are in this beautiful downtown village uh, with a cold beer uh, from a microbrewery you know, very tasty and, you know, the garden and everything is beautiful and nice and lovely. And you think that there are people on the other side of the world that are in the same moment, you know, in that situation that I explained before with the pollution and the, 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 the violence and the conflict and people literally dying. And I was always feeling bad. And I have to say that with time, you know, I realized that I also need you know, my own well-being and that that you need to have a balance between your own life and your own well-being. And because if you're not well yourself, then you cannot do well to the others. That's basically one of the key rules. Mm. So, you know, spending all your energy there is in that way will probably push you to the edge of a burnout or a sort of collapse. And then you won't be helpful for anybody. Yeah. And I remember, for example, when I was in Guatemala and at the end of Guatemala, I was receiving death threat and I had to left the country. At, at the beginning, I was thinking, well, I know I will stay here because I would feel guilty to leave now just because I can be protected by my Italian passport. But then people let me just understand and say, look, once you died, you, you're not helpful to anybody. And that's the same. Once you are uh, burned out, you're not helpful to anybody anymore. So. I have to say nowadays, I, I feel like I have a, 
a healthy balance between the work I'm doing and the life I'm, I'm doing when I'm here. Mm, that's a really useful message for anybody trying to live a life with purpose and work with purpose, whether they're in a corporate or they are an activist or they're doing something very frontline like you are. It's You can't just keep throwing yourself against the issue all the time because then eventually you burn out or, you know, you, you get death threats. I want to talk about this. <laughs> You're the first guest I've had who's talked about, oh, when, you know, there were death threats against me. Let's let's talk about that and about sort of the powers that you're up against and the vested interests that you're threatening because you're actually just speaking the truth and giving people evidence to say, actually, this is not okay. You're ruining our health and our communities. So what happened there? Can you talk about it? Um, oh, yeah, of course. Um, well, obviously, I mean, if you think what we're doing, we we collect evidences for communities and then they are able to stand up for their rights against some of the most powerful companies and governments in the world. Um, and obviously not everybody likes us, not everybody loves our job. Um, so both on the side of the governments and on the side of the companies. Uh, so in that specific case, uh, we, we were working on this case in Guatemala and uh, the, I mean, I, I, I never get to know who was there, but um, someone or, or maybe more people from government or from the company start to threaten me and the lawyer that was following the case, uh, mostly through phone and anonymous calls and with people under our houses, uh, you know, some sort of, um, you know, the typical kind of threat, let's say. Uh, and then, and then we, we we were denounced and and sued by the company, and then then we had to leave the country basically. Wow, because they would have sent round guys with baseball bats or something. Mm. Yeah, or you know, you don't know what could have happened. Unfortunately, you know the level of uh, of violence and conflict in. In, especially in Central America, but generally in, in, in Latin America, it's really, really high. Mm. So it's hard to say where it can get. Yeah, this is something that I have a lot of Latin American friends here in Spain, especially talk about this, my Venezuelan friends who obviously left a not great situation really can't go back. But just the danger that is very everyday or Brazilian friends who are like, you don't go out after dark unless you want to get shot for your shoes. So you went back though, right? Have you been back to Guatemala? Only after 10 years, because I was not allowed to go back, I would have been sued. But then after the sentence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, I was able to come back and I was back two years ago. Wow. But you went back. You really do live on the edge of your comfort zone. Well, you don't even live on the edge of your comfort zone. You do live in discomfort. When you're in the field, you're... You're gathering evidence for these communities. What is what is it like? So the easy part is get there, knowing the environment, and collecting samples of water, dust, air, soil, blood of people, hair of people, just understand, you know, the bioaccumulation of pollution, uh, collecting medical evidences about sick people and things like that. And that's somehow, I mean, the more scientific part, which is somehow the easier one. Um, the more difficult part is that in order to do that, you need to gain the confidence of the local community, which it is not easy at all. Uh, and especially if you think about Latin America, where 
basically 99.9% of the white people that have been there in the last 500 years have done a mess. <laughs> yep. So you arrive there and you have to try to convince them you're not one of those 99.9%. And that's a long process. Uh, that's the hard part, you know, the community monitoring and the community participation, and you need to be accepted by the community. Mm -hmm. And in some areas, like in the Amazon forest, some remote areas in the Andes, a lot of very often mines are uh, and oil extraction facilities are in very remote areas. Some of those areas have, um, I mean, if you don't arrive with, a, with the right contact there, you don't get there. Simply, you know, because in order to get there, maybe you have to jump on a boat and the only boat is from the community and the community will not allow you on the boat if the leader of the community does not give you a sort of special permit or something like that. So that's that's the real difficult part. And for us, you know, the way in which we do it is that by our regulation, we don't we never go to a community if we are not invited from the community itself. First of all, because we would have seen these, I would have seen these as a new form of NGOs, colonialism or something like that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and secondly, obviously, this will help us to, to gain the confidence of the community. We are invited by them. And then you have to spend time with them. That's the only way. You know, if you do this job, you cannot do it nine to five and then go back to the city and sleep in the five star hotel. You have to stay in the community and sleeping under a mosquito net with them and be part of them and gain their confidence. You need that confidence in order to do the job, in order to be there, in order to know what is happening and all of these aspects. Well, and to be able to take hair samples from their kids to see what impact heavy metals have had on their bodies and stuff. I can imagine how much trust that requires. Uh, so have you ever run into a place where you just couldn't make headway, where you actually did just, you couldn't gain their trust? Or have you always managed to and have skills over the years of learning how to show people that they can trust you? No, I mean, it never happened. We always gain uh, the trust of communities. And also, over time, we had overall 38 different projects. 37 out of 38, they knew us through word of mouth. Mm. So, you know, references by other communities. And, you know, the reputation we have, it is uh, it is pretty big, you know, it is pretty solid. Um, it's good. And that will help us a lot. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about who you're up against, because this is where a lot of people listening might not have really thought about it a lot, about the impact of the mining industry and how mighty they are. But if you think about it, we rely on things that come out of the ground and so many things. You know, your smartphone contains metals that were mined. Uh, the materials you use every day in your kitchen come from things that came out of the ground, out of a mine. So these are things, these are companies that have a lot of power and have had for a long time, a lot of money, a lot of influence, um, a lot of sway in the political realm. But also I imagine, you know, a lot of people in these communities probably work in the mines. They are themselves maybe economically reliant on the mining industry because it's what's a big industry locally. But I guess just I guess just talk about the mining industry and how it's so woven into part of our daily lives and how I guess most people don't think about it. Just raising a bit of awareness of how we rely on that stuff. Nowadays, 90% of the mines are in the developing countries, but all the minerals are used in the developed countries. It is the the 
ultimate form of neocolonialism. If you think about electric cars, for example, which is something now super big. Oh, yeah. And they are generally something that has, are used in the first world by generally the upper class. But the minerals that, that, that run the battery, which are mostly lithium and cobalt, they came from Congo and Bolivia, two of the most poor countries in the world. So it is really a matter of we from the West, from the developed country, uh, exploring resources in developing countries and getting the most out of it. There are plenty of examples, you know, economically speaking, they are not rich countries. Of the 25 countries that more rely on export of raw materials, 24 are among the poorest countries in the world, with the only exception of Norway. Oh, wow. All the rest, all the rest of the countries that, that, that base their, um, their economy on export of raw materials are among the poorest countries in the world. Congo, if you think the, the Republic Democratic Congo, uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, um, a lot of the Latin American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, but also locally. In Peru, the two most poor regions are the two regions where most of the mines are. In Italy, the second poorest region is Basilicata, which is where 8% of the Italian oil is produced. The idea that you know, you have the mine and therefore you're rich. It's completely wrong. Also because it's one of the less, the least labor-intense work in the world right now. It used to be labor-intense back in days, but nowadays it's all automatized. The, 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 the real number of jobs, it's very limited and it's mostly from, for engineers that came from abroad. Wow. So it's not even like there are local miners getting down there and extracting these things. So there really is very little value going to the local community. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, which actually, if you just put it this way, it's like, hmm, they're taking and they're not giving much back in return. And they're leaving massive environmental degradation, things that heavily impact the health of local communities for generations, right? Yeah, there is this story that a, a, a guy, I mean, a guy that I know from Italy, uh, he was in Peru back in the 70s to do a documentary. And uh, so in Peru, there is only one um, train line, train lane, which goes from the harbor of Lima to the mine of Cerro de Pasco. It's only for the mine. There's no passenger allowed. It's only for the mine. And the train goes up and take the lead at that time. The mine was producing mostly lead. It was during the Cold War, so lead was, was uh, precious for arms. Nowadays, they don't produce lead anymore because lead is now uh, useless metals. Uh, but back in the day, they were producing a lot of lead. So the mines, uh, the train started loaded of lead, and there was a turn and a point. And on the side of the turn, there was a school. Okay. And when the train went down, the school stopped, and all the kids went down because on the turn, the train lost a little bit of lead from the wagon, and the kids were collecting this lead to sell it in the market. This was what was left to them. You know, the scramble of the lead while the crane was turning. That was the only thing that was resembled. And the same mine now, so like 60, 50 years later, is the city is considered one of the most polluted in the world and not by me, but by the BBC. So it's just like 100% of the population should urgently hospitalize for the presence of heavy metals in their blood. So that's what remains to them. Some scramble of lead back in the past, and now the lead in the soil and all the pollution of lead, like the, the concentration of lead in the blood of people is like 10 times over the limit. 
and problem of, uh, you know, all the type of problem, leukemia, cancer, um, brain underdevelopment, all of these aspects. Which if you think about if that were to happen in your local community, wherever you are listening to this, people would be freaking out and suing the government and demonstrating in the streets. And yet this is just what they've been stuck living with for generations, literally decades or longer. And more. Yeah. And nobody has done anything about it because it's all about power. And this is an interesting thing. And I haven't actually talked about privilege in quite a long time, but you, you did bring it up when we talked about the discomfort of of you know taking a step back and having your comfortable life and having your microbrewed beer at home in Italy when actually then you know that on the other side of the world there are people who just they have to live like this and it's because of color and power imbalance and colonialism and the continuation of those systems that were set up in a time we like to think is very different from ours but yet our lives are still built on exploitation under you know the systems that we've set up it doesn't make us bad people that we benefit from it but we need to consider that these are the systems in which we live. You know, you pick up, I'm, I'm talking to you on my beautiful MacBook, my laptop that contains, you know, metals that were mined in these communities. It's definitely got some cobalt and some lithium and all of that stuff in there. And here I am creating a podcast, which is potentially the most middle-class thing I can think of right now. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, I realize, I recognize that and it's stressful, but also how do I, you know, how, if you're listening to this and that stresses you out to realize, if you look around you, think about all of the things around you, that have been mined, that have come from people who probably, you know, well, from areas where people were being exploited to have it taken out of their communities. And be uncomfortable with that. Go ahead and be uncomfortable with that. And I think we can even enlarge. It's not only on mining. Uh, I mean, when we met, we were talking about textile, if you remember. Yeah. I was going to ask, did that, how did we go with that? Uh, I mean, it, it, it goes a little bit. Uh, on a way, in the sense that we started with mine, but now we are more complete. I mean, we don't work only with mine. Another aspect, for example, we have been working in in, in Guatemala and in Indonesia over palm oil plantations. Mm. Uh, now, thanks God, it's a little bit less, but it used to be very popular a few years ago, the biodiesel. Everybody was thinking, oh, that's the solution of everything, you know, yeah. biodiesel. Um, but that has a huge impact. Uh, thousands of people displaced, Exploded workers. Yeah. And just to explain to listeners, sort of when we're talking about biodiesel, that just means certain plants like palm oil are grown in order to produce an alternative to fossil fuels. But what that means is that often huge parts of land are cleared of native trees or more diverse ecosystems to make way for these huge like palm oil plantations, for example, right? And then that creates monoculture, which is never good for the environment really, and it clears native species and wipes out orangutans and things like that that you see in Indonesia. So so you're working with these industries now. So you've expanded your model into other industries, right? Generally, we work with everything that is related to uh, exploitation. And that's a sort of exploitation of land, mostly. And mm. we have done this project in Guatemala, where um, Guatemala is one of the countries that has the um, less uh, resilience in terms of food production. They have a lot of malnutrition because their uh, food production is very um, weak. The system is very weak. There is a, a, the huge amount of land is, the, is in the hands of a few families. And then the smolders, they only grow a little bit of corn. And, and, and their diet is basically on corn and beans for the 90% of their diet. Hmm. And then you can see like denutrition, people 
like with malnutrition, with severe malnutrition, literally on the side, like 50 meters far away from a huge plantation of a huge piece of land that could be used to produce food and instead is used to produce biodiesel. <laughs> Palm oil is also used in, in the food industry uh, because it's a cheap, very cheap and very stable type of fat that is used in a lot of food products. Yeah, or margarine, or they use it for, it's in Doritos, or it's in shampoo. A lot of people probably don't know all of the things that palm oil is in. In Liberia, uh, Firestone, that most of us are familiar with, the one that produced tire, mm -hmm. owned the concession over 10% of the land of Liberia. Whew. So Firestone owned basically 10% of the arable land of Liberia. So this huge, enormous plantation of rubber tree uh, in order to produce rubber that then is shipped to, to the United States where tire are made. Not even the tire is made in Liberia, just the rubber. And then the tire is made for American cars. <laughs> Imagine that 10% of the land of your country is used to produce a good that actually is used by someone else on the other side of the world. And manufactured by someone on the other side of the world and all of those jobs yeah. are somewhere else. Yeah, this is this is the reality of the system we live in, of the systems we live in. And I think it's useful to actually have that land because I've worked in you know, supply chains and fair trade and, and these issues for a very long time and so have you. So we kind of know that. <laughs> it still blows my mind, though, if you pause to see it around you in your everyday life. It really is kind of stressful. But it's a good stress to sit with because it means it means maybe we will be moved to be part of the change and part of the shift and part of the change of systems. But I'm interested in hearing about what what next for you, what next for Source International, because you've expanded into working with new countries, new regions, new sectors. What's the plan? I know you're sort of sat at home in Italy right now because COVID has grounded all of us. But what's what's next? When the pandemic started, actually, I was in Liberia, and then we came back, and then we were basically grounded here in, in, in Italy, and it was very tough moment. And then, I mean, all of you know that Italy, in the first wave, was heated very, very badly. Yeah. So that was a very hard moment. Um, and I mean, I was forced to fire some people and put a lot of people, including me, half salary. Uh, but then from that discomfort to be completely locked down in your house and have to fire people not having funds, have to freeze all the projects and everything, we also somehow came out with, with different ideas. There was something that we were doing from, from, from before was the community monitoring. So teaching to local community how to do their monitoring. Mm. And we always did this in person. So traveling to the place and working directly with the community and teach them how to use instruments and how to monitor water quality, air quality, or things like that. But since we were stuck in our houses, we started to think about how can we do it from here? So we basically started to create uh, models that can be teached online to local communities for in order to enable them to do community monitoring. And now we, in partnership with the United Nations Development Program and the Swedish Environmental Protection Agency, we are actually developing a global guide on community monitoring 
that will be then produced together with the country office of the United Nations in six different countries. And wow. from there, probably, I mean, the aim is to expand it globally. So in theory, like we will have this global guide that everybody can take, bring it to their community and start to do uh, monitoring of mining activities by themselves, even without the help of Source International. Huh. Out of the the seeming disaster of having to sit in your own house for a year comes this resource that actually means you don't have to be there in person and you might have wider reach and impact as a result. That's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah, that, and then, I mean, I would say, <laughs> in theory, if this goes super well, it might get to our ultimate goal, which is to be useless and disappear. <laughs> What would have to happen? Yeah, what would have to happen for that to be possible? I, I don't know, but maybe the guide, if the guide takes place in a very, very powerful way and people are really able to use it, then, I mean, in theory, we will, we will be sort of useless, uh, which I think this should be the ultimate goal of every NGO. Yeah. I'm sort of interested in your perspective as a scientist. How do you see the world in a very particular way that might be useful for people? The most important aspect of the scientific mind is that you don't, you never trust what is not proved. If there is no evidences, you don't trust it. And I think this, in this moment, it is very relevant. A lot of news that came out that are fake or misinterpreted as a scientist you have the the mindset to just you know go through it and understand in a different way and i can give you an example you know when the vaccine astrazeneca came out and there were seven suspect clogs case over six million people which i mean me as a scientist the first thing i realized is like okay it's even if they're all true even if they're all true it's one over a million. If we stop doing everything that is one over a million chance to be somehow risky, I mean, we, we won't leave our houses, never. <laughs> I would never cross the street again. <laughs> I'm a biker. I, I love to bike. I bike pretty much every day. But I, I bike on the streets. That's one over 10 probably that a car will hit me. The, the chance that you cross the road and a car hit you is probably higher than one over a million. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the scientific mind, you know, just analyze things, make a few considerations, and then see from a different point of view. Uh, so yeah, if I can give a piece of advice that probably, no, try to get the scientific mindset, just question the things with, try to get evidences of what people are saying or what's problem are rising or or, or even in the news sometimes, mm. you know. That's what I was thinking, actually, because there's so much discussion in my world because, you know, I sort of teach communications and do a lot of communications and there's a lot of talk about fake news and how do we know what's right and how do we address the really big fears, all the things going on out there. But, yeah, if you just step back and actually think, okay, what's the evidence? Because probably people have heard this a lot by now. You know, you're entitled to your own opinion but not your own facts, and I think that's reassuring because facts are f kind of facts, especially when it comes to scientific things. 
So it's, yes, take a step back from emotion and opinion and just maybe look at the facts. Is there any prospect you'll be starting to travel again anytime soon? Because I know Latin America is a mess, obviously, with COVID right now. We are planning for the summer to restart the proper field work. Mm. Maybe we're a bit optimistic, but we don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the aim. We are also already preparing plan B if we cannot travel this summer and find another way to still do things yeah. and, and focus a lot on this guide. And we aim to publish in, in a year probably from now. So it's still a long process, but that could be the, I won't say the ultimate solution, but definitely yeah. a, a solution. So it might be happening again soon. That's exciting, actually, to be empowering people from afar, but then also being able to go back to communities and gathering evidence to empower them to fight for their own well-being. So in all of this, what is there to be hopeful about? What keeps you going? What do you want people out there to know? What keeps me going is the fact that I... I know I'm convinced I'm doing the right thing and I will put all my effort and that's it. <laughs> I can still win some battle, <laughs> probably. And that's, uh, that's enough probably to keep me going. And uh, linking with something that we have seen, that we have said before, I think one of the, um, the aspects that if I have to give, you know, something to people who are listening is, yeah, questioning the source of your product. And that's also like the game with, with the name of organization Source International, because we, we really want to be a source of how the source came out, the supply chain and everything, because of everything from, you know, clothes with cottons and wool and to, to food to... Uh, minerals and oil and energy, everything is a supply chain. And in every aspect, there is a solution that is better or less impactful than other. So being, at least being able, put yourself in your, in a discomfort of questioning every time you buy something and think about, okay, this is, this product is nice and cool, but is it also fair? Is it also environmentally friendly, social friendly or whatever? Just try to to embrace this discomfort. Yeah, definitely. Embrace the discomfort of the dawning realization that <laughs> we don't know a lot about the things we use. And once we start to think about it, even then it's still hard, isn't it? To be sort of conscious in the way you live, conscious of consumption. I mean, you're quite far down that rabbit hole by now in your life and career, I know, as am I. So it's hard to sort of usually come up with a list of easy resources for people to go to to find out more information about the sources of things. But do you have any particular directions you could point people in finding more resources to find out, you know, what's in their smartphone, what's in their clothes? I think that there are several um, organizations that, that provide um, some sort of ranking or, uh, you know, um, sustainable alternatives or something like that. Um, basically, I think there is several ones for each sector. So I cannot really give you like, look, this web, web page, go there and we'll find everything. But there are several solutions. Because you don't have to have all the resources. You don't have to be able to Google everything. You just start to 
to see things a bit differently and start to investigate and understand that everything we use has a supply chain. Like you said, there's a, there's a source behind everything and there are people in that supply chain and there's environmental impact, positive or negative, behind that. So yeah, it's just a really useful way to learn to think differently, isn't it? Just more consciously. I think I think the key element is is to question yourself and then then the then you will find the solution, then you will find the answer. The point is when you buy a t-shirt, it's just questioning where this come from. And then then it goes by itself. Then you can find all the information probably nowadays. You can easily find all the information. Or when you buy a new phone, just thinking, okay, this made super cool pictures, but what is behind? And maybe I will find I will buy the other phone that doesn't make those wonderful pictures, but it's sustainable. I would love, I, I doubt he'll ever listen to this. He might, but Baz, the founder of Fairphone, I would love to interview him at some point because they really went deep into all of the sources of things and not designing things to be obsolete so that you can repair different parts of it and keep replacing parts that break rather than having to buy a new phone. And it's, it's a really great model and they prove that it can work and actually make a decent product that looks cool too. So yeah, things start to change. When people become conscious, things really do start to change. So I think that's a useful thing for people to remember because, you know, we talk about the mining industry and it just feels so big and so impersonal. But what you've done at the end there is beautifully pulled it into the personal and made it something that actually it, your work is totally linked to how we see our own lives and the things that we use every day and how we live in the world. So it's not just that you're out there fighting these big faceless mining companies who then, you know, send you death threats or whatever. It's actually about how we all live and considering the impact of that on the other side of the world, potentially. But yeah, any final thoughts you want to leave people with, feel free, because this is a really, it's a really interesting way of seeing the world. You have a really interesting way of seeing the world because of your scientific background and because of the work you've done. So yeah, just any final things you would like people to to think about, to keep in mind? I think uh, I think it's just what I said. Question the 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 source of, of products. We we have these tendencies to see everything that is close to us and less things that are far from us. Mm. Um, so they everybody teach us that we have to close the water when we brush your, our teeth, but maybe we live under a mountain where basically there's plenty of water and that will not really affect too much the environment, but then maybe we buy a ring of gold that is produced in in a mine in the middle of Guatemala where they are using 250,000 cubic meters of water only to produce that ring of, of gold. To produce 30 grams of gold, you, you need this huge amount of water. And we are not we are not making the linking the dots mm. of the ring with the water on a desert area where people really lack of water, but we can link it to our brushing teeth. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah, we don't tend to think of the things further away. It's just sort of looking up from your own life now and then because it's easy to get sucked into it and you get busy and there's work and people have kids and jobs and, and just lives to get on with. So you don't have to quit your job and go work for an NGO or go live in a mining community. You can actually do that every day and whatever you're doing. Ah, well, this was a fun conversation. It was lovely to reconnect with you, Flaviano, and I'm so happy to hear that things are going well and you continue to do the good work and the necessary work that you've been doing. So thank you for who you are in the world. Thank you for what you bring to the world. And thank you for your time today. Thanks to you and thanks to everybody who were listening today.
Thank you. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tsvetkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.